If you're looking for a way to help birds or take your support to the next level, this May, I would love for you to join the Birds Canada Birdathon. It's easy to participate in and helps raise thousands of dollars for bird conservation. Learn more at birdscanada.org slash birdathon. Now let's get to the episode. You're listening to The Warblers, a Birds Canada podcast. I'm Andrea Gress. And I am Andres Jimenez. In this episode, we're chatting with Janet Ng, a PhD and species at risk biologist. She's worked with many species, including frisionous hawks and piping plovers. Today, we're going to dig deep into the world of frisionous hawks because, frankly, I knew nothing about them, and it turns out they're really cool. Plus, we'll learn about how Janet entered into ornithology and how she's navigated some challenges as an Asian Canadian woman in the field. Before we start, we want you to know that we record from home, and our guests do too. We invite you to share these spaces with us. You may hear a little of our lives in the background of this episode. We hope it makes you feel right at home. We are massively excited that you are going to be our first episode. Like oh, really? Episode ah. one. No. Okay. All right. That's cool. That's cool. Oh, you put a bunch of yep. pressure on her. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. It's all good. <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me. That's uh, yeah. That's a lot of pressure, but that's okay. I I like to talk about hawks and wildlife in Canada, so I'm here for it. You're also a brilliant science communicator, so it is clear oh, that you. you do it very naturally. Thank you. Yeah, they they can shut me up. So you are an accomplished potter, fisher, a birder, <laughs> and a science communicator, an ornithologist. Is there anything else that you wish to master? Oh, uh, I wish I wish that I could communicate with dogs better because that would that would sort of really help me out in terms of like hanging out with dogs. But um, I I you know it's it, it's funny that you can list stuff out like that because I. I forget that that's why I'm so busy all the time. And and it's funny too, and I'm sure we'll kind of touch on some of these topics later, is actually how interwoven some of those hobbies and passions and work projects are interrelated to, um, <laughs> which always boggles my mind when I'm sitting out doing pottery and thinking about birds and landscapes and and spatial analysis and science and communicating that out and yeah it's a big wide world out there and it's 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 bananas how interconnected it can be while you're sitting working on a pottery project are you just kind of mulling over some of those like science communication thoughts well, yeah, and, and and I mean, pottery is a great example because it's there's lots of aspects that have environmental ties to it. Clay, clay is mined out of the earth. Is it renewable? Is it a non-renewable resource? There's there's some discussion there. I was actually looking through some of the mining leases that are in Alberta and in Saskatchewan and looking at mining footprints. And, you know, the focus is often on uh, uranium mining and exploration up north. But I did actually come across some of those mining licenses uh, in the grasslands where clay is mined. And so that that really just brought together a couple of land use 
uh, landscapes and what my hobbies and my passions and what type of impact it might have on the landscape too. We have some really rich clay soils in in the grasslands of Alberta and Saskatchewan. And so it actually really does link into some of the grassland work that I've done with species at risk and species at risk birds, including ferruginous hawks. You've written several papers and you've completed a PhD in ferruginous hawks, but I think a lot of people listening to this won't know very much about them at all. So for folks who don't live in the Canadian prairies, have never heard of them before, could you just tell us a bit about them? Ugh, Ferruginous hawks are a big love of mine. They are uh, North America's largest budio species, the largest soaring hawk that we find here in Canada, the United States, and into Mexico. The big females are up to two kilograms, and their wingspan is about five feet, which is about my height. Uh, so they're a big, big bird. Unfortunately, their populations have seen some pretty big declines in the last few decades. And within Canada, they've actually been listed as a threatened species and then downlisted to a species special concern and then back uplisted to being a threatened species. The new point to add to that story is that they have actually been recommended to be downlisted again to a species of special concern, which we're going to take as good news. And so... With, with all these ups and downs with our population, there has always been concern that this grassland species or this open country bird um, can be negatively affected or impacted by human development and activities. So if we have more cropland in a landscape, is that good or bad for fusionist hawks? If we have more industrial land uses out there, such as oil and gas or wind energy or solar farms, other renewable energies, is that good or bad for fusionist hawks? And it was a complicated question because they live in a landscape that has a lot of different land uses and they can be found in some areas on the wintering grounds and breeding grounds pretty close to people. And then we've got birds that are way out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, that would be a 5K walk in. Um, and there's probably, hmm, if we weren't there doing weekly checks on nests, I bet the rancher would go through a couple times a year and that those would be the only people on those landscapes. Working with this bird that lives on such big landscapes across such a gradient or such different levels of human development and intensity of it was an important question because we wanted to learn more about what might be affecting them. <laughs> it was also a logistically really challenging project too. There were a lot of moving factors on it and we had to cover a lot of ground. But yeah, they're, they're a great bird to study because there's all these interesting, important questions. But they were also just fascinating to work with too. I mean, they eat, up in Canada, they eat Richardson ground squirrels. So we know them as gophers out here in the, in the grasslands. And uh, some of our work actually corroborated uh, Joe Schmutz's work from the 1980s and 1990s. Both of our studies, several decades apart, actually found that down to, down to like a pretty good certainty that a family of fruginous hawks can eat about 500 gophers in a single season. Uh, his study found that first, and then our, with our video data, our more detailed data, um, found the same thing. And so the, these birds have a role in the grasslands, and there's a lot of people that are interested in keeping them around and hopefully keeping them safe too. Can you tell me how they hunt? Because I've read a little bit about them, but I, I can't imagine how is it that they hunt some of these creatures when they are on the ground. What's neat is that they evolved to live on a landscape that had very few places to perch from up high. And so they're actually really great at ambush hunting from the ground. 
They'll find sort of a slightly higher spot. Historically, it would have been like a little mound um, or like a, or a slope, some, some small high point, And they would just watch, watch, watch. And they would come in and just bomb in on these on these Richardson ground squirrels and ambush them when they they weren't looking or not paying attention. Now that the, now with a lot more human features on that landscape, so we have power lines, we've got fence posts, we have different industrial features like like gas pumps and so forth. Then then there's other things to sit on, but you'll often actually see them sitting on the ground still, and they might just be chilling out. Uh, or they might be keeping a keen eye on what might be lunch next. It was a real shift for me to start looking for these big hawks on the ground instead of always up on a perch or up in the sky. And and our favorite thing every spring when we were training new staff to work on our project was to not forget to look down because sometimes they would just be sitting on the ground, oh my God. hanging out, and you'd be like, right, you were there all along. Oh, my God. But how is it that they catch it? Because I read some of them run to catch a prey. I've heard that too. And they're really silly looking running. And I, I suspect that they must just be pouncing, running up and pouncing on the most like like oblivious prey in, <laughs> in that case, or the most vulnerable, we should say. That's so cool. So because you and I both currently work with piping plovers, an endangered shorebird that breeds in Ontario and out in Saskatchewan as well, I can't help but wonder if these hawks are a predator of concern for plovers. One of the neat things that we did with our fruitionist hawk research was put video cameras up at nests. So they were small little lipstick cameras that were, uh, we had two positioned at the nest. So like one that was like a little bit of a broader view of the whole nest and one that was a little bit more zoomed up to see the action at the nest. Uh, and they were connected down to some digital systems. And so we, we recorded a lot of different food that came into the nest. Uh, we recorded how much food, how many foods, uh, what time they came in, and and all these details that just became available to us by, by, by taking this approach. As expected, they ate a lot of Richardson ground squirrels. Gophers were their uh, main go-to, and I think it made up to like 95% of their biomass because they're, they're, they're just kind of big, chunky meat, meat, um, meat bags. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so gophers were, were a great food source for fruitiness hawks in the years that we studied them with this, with video. But we did find that they did occasionally bring back whole adult ducks which was for me eye-opening. Um, so they and they weren't even they were bringing in small teal, so blue-winged teal, which are really really small ducks. But we also have a number of mallards and even pintails, and I think possibly shovelers that were brought into nests too. And those are big ducks. So those those fruitiness hawks are they're doing their work and they're bringing in these like nice nice barbecued duck. Um, but what we also found. And not to, not to anyone's surprise, once you start thinking about it, we had Fruginous Hawks bringing back uh, baby ducks and also baby shorebirds, too. And so mm-hmm. you'd see little ducklings come in and you're like, oh, okay. And, and, you know, some days you would see them bring three back successively. <laughs> and so... So they, they, they were pretty good at it. And again, it's they're, they're going to hunt for what's easiest to catch. And in, that, in those cases, those, those young shorebirds and young ducks were probably pretty vulnerable. Um, and yes, we had a number of young shorebirds brought back. You could see um, their long legs trailing behind them as they were brought in on the video. 
IDing them is is pretty hard because it's it's grainy video and there's a lot of mm, flinging flinging of of animal bits around. Um, <laughs> but but yeah, we saw shepherds come in. So in a lot of that range, piping plovers may not necessarily be near wetlands or lakes where frugianous hawks are. Um, but when those two are kind of found occupying the same landscapes, then, you know, I, I guess I would not be surprised if, if they did occasionally eat a piping plover. <laughs> it's going to be an overlap. Now, which, which <laughs> one would you root for? I can't answer that on record. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a tough question. I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have threw that at you. <laughs> we'll be right back. The Warblers is supported by Feather Friendly. Birds can't see glass and millions die each year because of window collisions. You can save dozens of birds by treating your windows with Feather Friendly's do-it-yourself kit or their commercial solution for large projects. The markers are easy to apply and they work. You can also double your impact by using the code BIRDSCANADA and Feather Friendly will make a donation to support bird conservation. Keep birds singing, treat your windows with Feather Friendly. Visit featherfriendly.com. More popular knowledge suggests that birds that hatch first often are the ones that get to eat the most and they kind of win the competition. Was that the case with these hawks? A great segue into uh, one of our most recent papers that was led by, um, who was at the time an undergrad and is now, I think, starting to pursue a PhD, uh, Megan Zochka. She studied food distribution and allocation competition at a nest at Frugianus hawk nests. I mean, I don't want to have clickbait out there, but we were very surprised by what we found in our paper. So Megan and I just looked looked up the paper so I could get these very impressive numbers available to, to your audience. Megan watched feedings at 18 different nests that were collected over three different years. And we had over 350 hours of video of just feeding. And so (laughs) I, uh, yeah, she's a superstar. And so there was a lot of video to watch, but also she recorded every single bite of food that parents ripped off of prey. And she recorded who it went to, how big was the piece and who eventually ate that piece. And so this mama hawk would rip off, rip off a little strip of meat, and it could be a tiny piece of meat. She would record, yes, that is one bite, approximately half the length of her beak. She fed it to oldest chick number one, who ate it. Or she fed it to youngest chick number three, and that bite was then stolen by chick number two, who then ate it. And so she recorded all of this data over two years and wrote this wonderful, very cool behavioral paper. What she actually found was that, yes, baby hawks are competitive, very competitive little jerks, as you would kind of expect them to be. Bigger hawks, the older hawks were more likely to be competitive. So they were more likely to steal food from from the younger, smaller birds. But what was absolutely stunning was that parents actually allocated food. So they actually fed that younger bird more food to make up for food that was stolen from it. (laughs) Fascinating. It is so fascinating. We have a thousand more questions. And so 
birds were feeding, but they were actually really paying attention to make sure. And, and we statistically showed that all the, all the nestlings got approximately the same amount of food at the end of the day, which sometimes the oldest chick could be two to three times larger than the smallest chick in the nest. And so you can imagine that there's a lot of competition that's going on and a lot of hung hungry individuals, but the parents were like, mm -mm, not on my watch. This is how it's going to go down. So Janet, isn't that completely different from whatever we imagine before you set up these cameras? And what is the advantage that the, why do parents want to distribute the food equally? There's been a lot of studies over decades of competition within a nest. Who gets who gets what? How hard do you scream for food from parents and so forth? But I think a lot of that research has been focused on songbirds um, and, and it, because they can be studied in the lab that way or they can be studied in the field. A lot of that work hasn't been done, at least on this, I would call micro detail of attention um, in raptors. A lot of what we assume about Competition between nestlings and food allocation is based on songbirds, and the, the and the and that and that knowledge base is huge. So this might be more common in larger birds or in raptors, more, maybe more than we think. The neat thing is that I think what this is saying, what we're suggesting that it's saying, is that parents are trying to maximize how many healthy, happy babies fledge that nest at the end of the season. And so instead of stacking the odds towards the biggest and the oldest and kind of putting all of their investment into their big, into their oldest best bet young, then they're trying to spread out that investment to hopefully maybe get all three birds out of the nest at the end of the season. The, the years that we did this research, food was pretty, pretty plentiful. I mean, we have so many questions on what this would look like if food was not so plentiful. Would parents then have to make these hard decisions? Or would, they, would they start to allocate or would the competition become more fierce? Like, would older chicks become more competitive because they're hungrier? Would parents allocate food differently if food is limited? There's, and there's, there's, so, oh, there's probably a lifetime to mine there. Uh, and, and they're also important questions because climate change and land uses absolutely impact how much and what type of prey is found on the landscape. Okay, so let's get into logistics a little bit. I've been near raptor nests near a bald eagle nest or owls, and I can tell that they're really unhappy that I'm anywhere near their nest. So how did you actually get cameras into a hawk nest? Perusia's hawks are, I think they're like a lot of birds. There's going to be a few individuals that are very angry, very protective, very, um, we'll call it assertive <laughs> in terms of protecting their nests. And so we had a few where... Um, we, we probably wouldn't have put video cameras up because it would have been too stressful for, for the parents. It just, it would have been unhappy for, for everyone. Um, and we would have been unsafe while doing it because I guess we should also point out that these nests are in trees or on nest platforms. Um, so anywhere from 25 to 40 feet up in the air. Um, so yeah, we, we definitely had some angry birds. Uh, and then I'd say that the vast majority of birds that we had were concerned, um, but not super aggressive when we came in to put in those nests or put in those video cameras. 
Um, and so, so logistically, it wasn't too bad. We usually, we definitely always had a couple of people on the ground to help get the digital um, uh, systems going. And they would keep an eye on what the parents were doing, how, how stressed out were they. Uh, and of course, we kept a really close uh um, uh, we kept an eye on the time to make sure that we weren't at the nest for too long too. Um, and we only put cameras up once the young were of a certain age that they could thermoregulate on their own and kind of be okay without parents, say, like right at the nest for, for a few minutes. So logistically, I'd say getting up into the nest was the hard part. We were We were definitely wary of adults, but thankfully we didn't have any, nobody, birds or us, had any scary encounters when we were putting up those video cameras. Oh, it's really incredible. It's like the exact opposite of what I would have thought. <laughs> and and that is, it's definitely Virginus Hawk specific. I would have a whole nother game plan <laughs> if we were working with Swainson's Hawks or Great Horned Owls, I'd say. <laughs> um, Janet, I can't help but notice that you linked your research with how much food parents distribute to nestlings with land use. And I find that link to be fascinating. And so I am left with a question, what led you to this research and why is it important to understand the competition between nestlings and adult prey birds on how food is distributed? So Frucius hawks, they live in some places that are just big tracts of native grassland, as far as the eye can see, historical, historical native grassland grazed by cattle, uh, and then we still find nests that are in 100% cropland as far as the eye can see. You could do a full circle and you would see crops of all sorts of different of different varieties. And we've also had a lot of assumptions about where birds would like to or where they're selecting or where they're nesting. Because a lot of people will suggest that they are most likely or they are heavily dependent on those large tracts of native grassland. And, and yet we found birds in these different landscapes. So the question was there. And, and that was also why we covered most of Southern Saskatchewan and most of Southern Alberta to do this research because we needed a large sample size of birds nesting in all these different places. And we looked for place and we took note for where places where we did not find fruitiness hawks and we took note of where we found lots. So we did uh, abundance of nests across these different land use types. And so that question then starts as, as a habitat use, like where are they found? And what we found was that these birds are actually most abundant, are more likely to nest in places that had about half cropland and half grassland, which is a pretty big departure from, it's a pretty big departure from what we would have assumed and what the literature, maybe not necessarily literature, but I guess what um, anecdotally what we thought Frugianus hawks liked. So, okay. They're nesting in these landscapes that have some cropland on it, and, and we're going to find the most nests, number of nests in these landscapes. But how do we know that those birds are nesting okay? Like, are they doing just as well in these landscapes with some cropland? And are they doing just as well in landscapes that have a lot of industrial uses to them too? Uh, just because a bird is nesting there, it doesn't necessarily mean that their nests are successful, or as if they're as successful as nests um, placed in landscapes with not lots of native grassland. And so we needed to find out then how were they doing reproductively? Um, did they have 
as many young did they how many eggs did they hatch how many young did they fledge how did those fledged young do after they leave the nest so there's whole reproduction questions that followed it and one thing that we knew for certain about frugia socks when we started the study is that their population and the reproduction is intrinsically is just super duper tied to how much food they get and so up in canada they're really reliant they're really dependent on those ridges and ground squirrels and so <laughs> the the joke is that we were partly studying ground squirrels and we were partly studying hawks and and that's probably true for so many animals that we work on um they're tied to their stomachs and so we need to understand what's happening with their food but i find it even more fascinating to think that the same hands that are doing pottery are mastering a 60 cm gigantic hawk how do you single-handedly <laughs> manipulate such a beast well i'm definitely no master and it's definitely not single-handed i'm i've been very fortunate to work with some great biologists in the field that probably do handle these birds single-handedly um but often if we're banding or if we're fitting something like a satellite transmitter work uh fitting fitting a satellite transmitter which was a big focus of Jesse Watson's work on our Frugius Hawk project then then it's definitely many hands it's it's a few hands getting the trapping going and then it's a few it's definitely a few hands handling the bird um to to do that type of work um and uh and yeah when it comes to big birds like that it, it is always better to do it in pairs if not more um i'm always actually really in awe of people that work out at some of the hawk watch or the hawk observatories um because they are handling birds single-handedly um with a bird tucked 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 under the arm and kind of manipulating and yeah and and also getting the birds in and out of their hands in very few minutes too so there's 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 a lot to be in all of there so how do you catch a ferruginous hawk so there's a couple of different approaches to it you can the first approach you can appeal to their stomach and so we have these little they're called noose carpets and they're they're essentially little um fishing line carpets uh that we do bait with live bait so something like a gerbil um that's all under animal care permits and all our provincial and federal permits allow us to do this work the audience this is the only type of baiting that is permitted yes that's right and and it's and it's also done very sparingly too i would say for the goals of our work the obje- our research objectives it was actually almost like a like a second resort approach but essentially we're appealing to their stomachs and so that's one way to 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 catch a hawk and then the second second approach is to appeal to the protective nature around their nest uh hawk parents are strongly um protective of their of their eggs of their young of of any intruders in their territory we have video of them coming just to beat down on badgers and coyotes and actually they're actually off in the distance too um it's it's some really remarkable video where you can just see a little coyote head pop up in the distance or just sort of like the back end of a of a badger off on the side of a camera view and you'll see parents go after them And so they're they're very protective. And so if you put a um a taxidermied great horned owl or a robotic one or even a live one that rehabbed ambassador owl um then we're appealing to that protective nature. And we use nets that are very similar to the mist nets that are often used for songbirds. They're 
styled a li- little bit differently um, and the makeup of them is a little bit different um, but but the same the same principles are there how to catch a bird and then and then you hold your breath and hope it sounds like a really exciting day in the field it, it is if you have a great day in the field and then there's I believe like and I've I've been a part I've been there too a lot of 3 a.m 4 a.m mornings where where it's a very it's a long day of waiting um, or driving between nests and just kind of hoping. So, yeah, and this is, um, I would encourage people to look at uh, Jesse Watson's thesis um, that was published a couple of years ago because he was looking at habitat use by frugianist hawks and essentially how do they use the landscapes within their home range. And he was tracking a whole number of them using these satellite transmitters uh, and tracking them through migration. And we learned lots about where they go, when they go, and also what types of challenges they meet on migration too. That's something that I've always been interested in, including some of the nighthawk work that I've done uh, in the last few years, is to learn more about challenges that birds might meet during migration, because that is a long haul to get from wintering grounds to breeding grounds. And they can encounter a lot of different things. One of my, it's not necessarily a favorite story, but one of, I think like a really good example is one of the birds, one of the frugianus hawks that we had a tag on was recovered in Utah after it had been hit by a vehicle, unfortunately, which happens. They hunt by roads. Um, maybe they're scavenging. There's there's kind of that risk that's associated with them. And they, they, they fly over and near a lot of roads during migration. But when this bird was picked up and it was taken to the vet, the vet had the foresight to do an x-ray on it. And unfortunately, the bird was was put down due to um, some pretty, pretty big uh, injuries. But the vet actually also found a shotgun pellet lodged in this bird's sort of um, butt leg region. Ultimately, this, this bird was killed by a vehicle, but somewhere in its few years of life, it had also been shot. And that boggles my mind that that this is this is our effect on these birds that live on our landscape. Wow. Yeah, that's crazy. So Janet, you mentioned that Frisianus hawks population has kind of fluctuated up and down over the years. Um, could you elaborate on that a bit more? Frisianus hawk populations tanked really hard in the 80s and 90s. They went up a little bit um, in the early 2000s or so. And then back down. So we've seen some fluctuations in their federal listing and provincial listing in Alberta too, where they have an Endangered Species Act. But they have been, as as of a couple weeks ago, been recommended by Kasiwik to be downlisted to a species of special concern. And that's a reflection on mostly, I believe, on their population somewhat stabilizing in the last decade. Seeing all those dramatic fluctuations for this species at risk finally stabilize it's a tricky term because stabilized could mean could go up or could go down but the fact that they've found some way forward or some even even keel for a few years is is good news and so i really hope that um some of the work that our group has done uh to to recommend landscapes for uh, rehabilitation for um oil and gas uh, oil and gas development and for conservation too that's been adopted by some of the nonprofits that work in the area i'm hoping that can help this bird the species this population increase over the next few years and that we can then celebrate them being taken off the species at risk species at risk act completely hopefully in a few years 
That being said, as I said, when they when a population is stabilized but at lower numbers, we, we still have to be really careful about it. Some of the research that I did showed that climate change can be really tricky for Frugianus hawks long-term in that weather, extreme weather, can have short-term impacts. And then the concern is they could have potentially long-term impacts on the population. And as I said before, they're found in places that have some grassland and some cropland. But what's really important is that we need both of those types of landscapes for Frugianus hawks. It, what we're finding is that the best comp, the best landscape is one that has some of both. So cropland's pretty easy because there's a lot of um, economic incentive to to cultivate and to grow crops. But one of the things that, and this is really context specific, I don't want people to like simplify this message, but supporting grazing and ranching and using those grasslands as pasture, whether it's for cattle or for bison, bison would be great. Um, but supporting those land uses on native prairie is absolutely critical to conservation of native grassland. We're seeing lots of discussion about reducing our food footprints by eating less meat. And I always try to temper that with a caution that it's really context dependent. Because in Alberta and Saskatchewan, if we didn't have cattle ranching, we would no longer have native prairie. It would all be cultivated. And I know people make arguments about soil, soil quality and so forth, but given our technology for growing crops and feeding people, that is less of an issue now. We really need to be focused on keeping those grasslands wild for native plants and for native wildlife. You know, continuing that monitoring and continuing hard work to keep them stable and maybe hopefully even more recovery is is our way forward. And yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing more of that. Incredible. Did you always want to be an ornithologist? I think I got sucked into it pretty early. Uh, I, I spent a lot of time in my childhood playing outside. Uh, I grew up in Alberta, so I played in the mountains. Um, I played up north. I uh, spent a lot of time wading in rivers um, and climbing trees and things I probably shouldn't have been climbing. Uh, and so, and I also really liked animals. And I, I've told the story to, to lots of folks before, but I, I really had a moment where I realized that um, when I learned that a wildlife biologist was a real profession, uh, because I was watching a nature documentary and they were interviewing a wildlife biologist um, who was probably wearing like a parks uniform or like a fish and wildlife uniform. And in, in, and on screen was his name and his title wildlife biologist. And it finally like linked together all of these things that I liked um, into something tangible. And then once you kind of put a name to it, then, you know, you can start asking and poking and prodding and finding your way through that. Um, but it, it was definitely, it was momentous to be like, wait a minute, I could get paid to do this. That's a big I, I still feel that way, by the way. <laughs> yeah. It's funny you say that. Cause I had a similar experience. I, I made it through a full four years of university still didn't know what to do with myself and then had a volunteer gig with uh, platypus surveys and went, wait a minute, these people I'm out here with are getting paid to do this. This is incredible. 
time to pivot my life direction a little bit. <laughs> I, I, I feel I, yeah, when people really love what they do and they still love what they do, I'm so fortunate. I feel very fortunate that like we can, we've had uh, on my current work right now, working with piping plovers, we have a few people that are new to field work and new to this type of work. Um, and, and we've had a few people as we're, as we're sitting on a beach watching piping plovers uh, courtship fly and courtship um, do their silly little like foot flipping thing, um, <laughs> being silly essentially. But we're we're sitting sitting on the beach with binoculars watching these birds, and we're like, I can't believe I'm getting being paid to do this. Mm-hmm. And and my response was, and you could keep doing this every day of your life, and that's that is true. I know we're so lucky. Were there any like when you decided wildlife biologist? That's what I want to do. Were there any fears or concerns you had starting out in the field? Like any any worries that you wouldn't be able to make it in the industry? Well, when I when I looked around to see who was in wildlife biology, it was and still is in a lot of ways pretty male do- male dominated. People are generally Caucasian, uh, and also I should I should also add that I started my undergrad in two thousand. And so I've kind of watched some of this progress and some aspects of it stay static. Um, and so, yeah, there was definitely, I've, I, I often have moments where I'll look around at a conference, at a meeting, maybe in grad school, that there's not a lot of people that looked like me. Um, but thankfully I had a mom who kind of navigated the same world. She, she immigrated here from Hong Kong, um, and, and pursued, um, a couple of different fields. She has a couple of science degrees, uh, worked hard for them. Um, and, but just, and just navigated a world where she was an Asian woman. And so, uh, the tactic was to plow through. And I mean, it's a lot more nuanced than that now. And it's something that I talk about a lot with, with different folks at, at different, at different stages of the career because it's, it's always nuanced. Um, but yeah, I think it's important to make the space to find the space. And, and I, what I'm doing now, cause I'm, I'm feeling kind of comfortable where I am is to make sure that we're making space for others too, because there are challenges to being the only Asian woman in a room. And when you're competing for jobs too, that's a lot to think about. I was in uh, a recent meeting where somebody was complaining that a person of color outcompeted two white men for, for a job. And I had literally nothing constructive to say because I mean, any day that I'm employed, I've competed for that job. And so, Essentially, what this person was telling the group was that we were possibly less deserving of that and that we got it as a token job. And that really hurts because I ha- I mean, currently, I have a PhD in biology. I have 20 years, 20 years of wildlife experience. And I have to listen to that in a meeting with people and discuss it and defend it and rationalize it. And so... That weighs heavily on me and people coming up into the industry too. And, and it shouldn't. And, and I'm, I, I like to be here and that's, and that's why I really appreciate invites for podcasts like this. Um, Birds Canada does such great work. Um, but you also have a wide audience too. So we can, we can talk about this. 
Absolutely. We can't put our heads in the sand that this doesn't exist, that we're all treated equally or that we all have the same opportunities um, or that we all face the same challenges because that isn't true. And acknowledging that is then a first step. It's, it's a tiny incremental step, but it does then help to make some space for those people um, from underrepresented or, under, or from underrepresented or marginalized groups. Janet, this podcast has been a remarkable journey from ferruginous hawks and the way they hunt while standing on small little hills to get gophers towards the link between land use and how much food parents distribute to their nestlings to what it involves to be an Asian woman in science and in a very male-dominated field like hawk research. And I would like to ask you, what is the one thing you would tell to young people of color that want to participate in research, in conservation, and to steward the world that is from all of us? Oh boy, one piece of advice, hey? Hmm. I guess I would tell people, people of color, people from other groups, that you do belong in this industry and that we need you in this industry. And also no industry is easy to, to break into and to work in. There's nuance and niche and bias and everywhere that you go. But if you choose wildlife biology, wildlife conservation, science outreach, communication, we need a diverse group of people working there and you deserve to be there. A lot of times we're not certain if we should be there or if we belong. And that's and there's a lot of things that'll tear down your confidence. And and that's unfortunate. And I think that's a cultural buildup that brings us to feel that way. But <laughs> I think I'm have the um, dig out your brewery and your confidence to work in this industry because we need you here. Janet, thank you so much for that inspiration. The Warblers is a podcast of Birds Canada. Our goal is to bring you the information you need to discover, enjoy, and protect birds. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, leave a review, and share this podcast with everyone you know. Birds Canada relies on the support of donors like you. To learn more or to make a donation, visit birdscanada.org. And if you give, please note the podcast in the comment box. Might have to have you back on to chat plovers because you know that's that's got to be a future podcast. We most I... <laughs> definitely need to have Janet back to talk about plovers, to talk about nighthawks, to talk about how to develop a career in science, to talk about the prairies, about gophers, coyotes, and so many. You're other gonna things, freak her out again, Potter. Andreas. <laughs> no, this is great. Can you come talk me up to like all my meetings and stuff? This is so good. <laughs> we could just have a little set intro that we come do. Yeah, <laughs> I, I can definitely provide that service. Yeah. For sure, yeah. <laughs> Working academia, I would jump. <laughs> Where can people follow you? I can be found on, uh, I'm most active on Twitter, and my handle is at Janet Ng Bio. Uh, and my last name is NG, is spelled NG. Um, and I'm pretty active there, and I talk a lot about hawks and raptors. And now, kind of piping plovers and shorebirds have infiltrated their way into my heart, so they're there. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm always looking to interact with people and to talk about um, 
careers and schooling and experiences uh, because I feel wildly fortunate to have great opportunities. Um, luck had a lot to do with it, but also some strategic placements and you know seeking out those opportunities, I think, got me to where I am, which I'm very grateful for. Uh, so I'm always ready to talk about it. And with this podcast, we're hoping to give both the hardcore birders, but also the general public some stuff to think about. And okay. that yeah. that topic is is quite uh, digestible. Okay, good. good. You'll I, allow I'm my pun. I'm not gonna lie, broke my heart a little bit. You know, I've I've always <laughs> thought that you know the first fledgling to make it is the strongest, but no. It, it might it might help that we actually did have on video at least one instance of the large largest nestling eating the smallest one. So Sibleside is still oh is still still happens with hawks and probably doesn't happen with birds. Oh um, but there's a lot of high drama at at hawk nests. Well, people, you heard it from Janet. Things might be a little different from what you expected, but there is this one hawk that managed to eat its brother. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Janet. We thank love you so this much. conversation, and I think this is a super first episode. Super. I'm so glad. Thank you so much. The Warblers is produced by Andres Jimenez, Jody Allaire, Ruth Friendship Keller, Andrea Gress, and Kate Dole Gleish. This episode was edited by Greg McLaughlin, with theme music by Jose Mora and artwork by Alexander Nichol. Until next time, keep birding. <laughs>